Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Thank you, Wes, and yes, happy Mother's Day uh, to all our mothers out there, all our grandmothers, all our uh, foster mothers. We thank you so much for everything you do for us. Um, This is a great day, of course, to celebrate all of our women, including our mothers. There's only one problem I actually have with Mother's Day. I love Mother's Day. It's a great day, but... Uh, one problem I have with it is it just doesn't happen frequently enough. Am I right? Am I right, women? We should have a Mother's Day every week. Right? I think we could get that legislation passed. There's a lot of things we disagree on in legislation right now in our country, but we could probably get that one passed, right? Mother's Day every week? How awesome would that be? Um, Hallmark would definitely get behind that one, I think. Um, but happy Mother's Day uh, to all of you. We appreciate you. We don't say it enough, but we appreciate all that you do. And so hope you have a great day and enjoy your day Uh, today and celebrating that. Well, last week we started into a new series uh, called Being the Church on the Book of Ephesians. And if you're here with us, we went through over the first couple of verses. We're going to go through the rest or half of chapter one today in the book of Ephesians. But we're calling, of course, this this, uh, series Being the Church because one of the things that the book of Ephesians gives to us, just like Uh, Just like every other place in God's Word, the book of Ephesians is a gift to us, and one of the great gifts that we're given through the book of Ephesians is this understanding, this timeless picture of what it looks like to be Jesus' church. And as we're going through this, what we realize is that this document that was written 2,000 years ago on the other side of the planet is, is, is hugely relevant to what it means to be the church even now today in 2021 in Scottsdale, Arizona. And as North Bible Church, it's our challenge, of course, to engage with this timeless picture of what God wants the church to look like, and then to ask the question of what does it look like for us to engage with that picture and to look like the church to actually be the church today. And that phrasing, that title, be the church, is intentional. Instead, you know, we didn't name it doing church, we didn't name it uh, come to church, we didn't name it serving the church, because all those things are important, but ultimately, all of those things kind of miss the point, the central point of what it means to actually be the church. In this sense, that being the church is not just about the things that we do, it's not even about gathering in this building, being the church is about who we are in Christ. So whether or not we're in this building, whether or not we're serving, whether or not we're coming to gather for worship, we are the church if we are in Jesus. No matter where we go, whether we're gathered or scattered, we are the church. And so this is what Ephesians reminds us of over and over again, that this is the biblical view of the church, that as Christians, we are the church. This is a big part of what Paul is trying to get across in the book of Ephesians. You know, last week we talked about being the church in terms of getting to the essential nature of what it is that makes the church so sweet. What is it that Jesus wanted his church to look like? We talked about the imagery of peeling the, peeling the orange to get to what is really the fruit, the sweet fruit and the, and the core of what being the church is all about. As we talked about that, we talked about the book of Ephesians being one of those places that we can go to that um, is really the crux and the climax of Paul's theology on the church. In other words, what is the church supposed to be? In fact, I quoted one scholar who calls the book of Ephesians pound for pound, the most powerful document ever written, which is a high standard, but I think as we engage this morning in Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to see why exactly that is actually uh, a good classification, really a good explanation for what uh, Ephesians is all about, Uh, especially as we get this morning to what it means to be, and one of the things we're going to see in this chapter, this first part, really, or this second part, I should say, of this chapter is what it actually means, getting to the heart of what it actually means to be a Christian. So, 
If I were to ask you that question just this morning as we begin, what does it mean to be a Christian? And you can think of one word or one phrase. How would you describe it? Like if a a child comes up to you, a small child, and just asks you, what does it mean to be a Christian? Maybe it's your child. Maybe you've had children who have asked you this before. You're a a mother or a dad or a grandmother, a grandfather, and and you've had either your child or your grandchild ask you, well, what does it actually, Grandpa, I know, Grandma, I know you're, you're a Christian. What does it mean to actually be a Christian? Mom, Dad, I know you're a Christian. What does it mean to actually be a Christian? Why do we go to church, and what does it mean uh, to be a part of the church? How would you answer that question? What about somebody who uh, knows you're a Christian that doesn't know anything about the Bible or what the church is all about? If they were to ask you that, how would you explain it? With one word or one phrase, as simply as you could, what word, what phrase would you use? Now, I won't put you on the spot by asking you to answer that question out loud this morning, but I want you to think about that as we read this next section of the book of Ephesians. What would your answer be, and how does it line up to what Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 1? We're going to begin in verse 3 and continue through verse 14. And it says this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now in him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise, with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now as we read through this, this is of course the middle part of chapter 1. Now scholars have observed that Ephesians chapter 1 kind of makes up a prayer that Paul is praying for the Ephesians. There's two parts to this prayer. This is the first part that we just read. This first part is taking the form of basically a blessing or thanksgiving or praise prayer. And what a blessing prayer is, is essentially saying this. We, we are praising God. You see it right from the beginning there. We uh, blessed, be the God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. So it's blessing God, it's praising God, it's giving thanks to God, and then it's answering the question, why is it that God is worthy of our praise? So there's two parts that happen there. From the beginning, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then, according to that heading, then he goes all the way through the rest of these verses and begins to define, then, what these things are that God has done for us. Why is it that God is worthy of our praise? And he goes through talking through all these things, and we see that in all of this, he gives an answer to why God should be praised. What he has done... Namely, that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then he describes what those things are. Now, of course, when we read this, 
What gets the headline and probably what gets our attention right away is this phrase, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I mean, think about that for a minute. How would you define that? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I mean, it's hard to come up with more of a grandiose statement than something like that. Right? And it, it, makes our, it makes our heads spin just to think about what possibly could those things be. But I think even more than that, it's designed to get us to a place where we see ultimately this is what it looks like to be a Christian. This is how God has blessed us. Now, as we track through this, se- uh, through this section, there's a few things that are critical to helping us understand what Paul is getting at, what he's talking about in terms of this great picture of these heavenly blessings, or, the, or these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. First of all, one thing that we see is that there's a list of all these blessings. With these big theological names like salvation, justification, adoption, forgiveness, redemption, inheritance, glorification. There's significance to each one of these things. We'll get to that here in just a minute. We may also notice that these blessings are presented to us according to God's will. Paul says this is according to God's will, and then he talks about them in terms of past, present, and future. That there's a, there's, a, there's a time completeness to this all. That God has been doing this past, he's, been doing it, he's doing it presently, and he's doing it future. All of these spiritual blessings. We'll get to that here in a minute as well. But finally, the most important thing to notice, and the thing that I want to discuss first, because I think this is the thing that everything else turns on, is this repeated phrase that happens throughout this passage. It starts in verse 3, and it cascades all the way down through the verses that we just read. All the way down to verse 14. It's the point of all of this, and I think it holds the key to this passage and really holds the answer to that question, what does it mean ultimately to be a Christian? And it's that little phrase, in Christ. Or the phrase is also rendered, in him, in certain places. But it happens 11 times in the verses that we just read. Now, you may know that this letter, uh, like the rest of the New Testament, was written in ancient Greek originally. So, we're going to do a little, a little, 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 tiny ancient Greek study on this, on this text this morning, okay? Don't worry. It's going to be easy. I'll walk you through it. I even brought a diagram with me, a little graph for you. So let's go ahead and put that graph up. I want to explain this to you. So when we see this word in Christ, it comes from a Greek preposition that can typically be translated or understood in two different forms. What is known as the locative form, which refers to location, or what is known as the instrumental form, uh, which is more like kind of means to something else, right? So if you think of locative, it's easy to remember location. It looks just like location. It means where you are, where you end up. It has to do with arrival. So in Christ would be like, you know, arriving in Jesus. Instrumental, on the other hand, if you think about it maybe like a musical instrument, for example, a musical instrument in and of itself has no value unless it produces music. Now, instrumentalists may disagree with me on that, but the point of this is, right, ultimately, that the reason we play an instrument is to get to the music. The point is the music, and so the instrument is a means to something else. It's producing the music. And so you can see in the way, depending on the way we understand this phrase, in Christ, it may lead us one way or or another. In other words, it's to say this, if it is in Christ, locative form, It means that this is the place that is the ultimate arrival. If it's in Christ's instrumental form, it means that Jesus is a means to get something else, okay? In this case, it would be Jesus as a means to get these spiritual blessings that Paul's talking about. 
So which exactly, which one is Paul using in this case? Is it locative or is it instrumental? Well, I think when we see in Christ, right, first of all, the way that it's translated leads us already towards the locative side of this. But also, if you go back to verse 1, it gives us a little bit more of an understanding into what, how Paul's using this phrase. We talked about this last week. But Paul uses this phrase in Ephesus and then in Christ in the very first verse. He says, I'm writing this to those of you who are the saints who are in Ephesus, which obviously that's a locative place, locative use, right? Uh, because Ephesus is a city, a geographical reality. They were located in the city of Ephesus. It doesn't make any sense to say through Ephesus or by Ephesus. Um, and he joins it in the same sentence with, you're in Ephesus, but you're also in Jesus Christ. So you're located or positioned in Jesus as well. And what we see is that he sets for us this reality that all the way through, uh, uh, every time he talks about in Christ, every time he talks about in him, he's rooting us in this understanding that we are located in Christ. In other words, Jesus is the arrival place. He's not an instrument or a means to get to something else. Now that little bit of Greek work kind of sheds light a little bit on what it means to be in Christ, but as a locative phrase, what this means is that the place of arrival is being in Christ. And the blessings that come, that Paul talks about here, come as a result of being in union with Christ as the arrival. So that we are saved by Jesus, but to Jesus. He is both instrument, but he is also the arrival place. So that the destination of our salvation is Jesus himself. Now, this may seem like a little thing, it may seem like splitting theological hairs, but I think it's what actually unlocks what it means to be a Christian. Because, look, a Christian is not someone who just merely receives blessings from Jesus. A Christian is someone who is actually in union with Jesus. And this idea of union is pressed even more so as we move through this passage. That a Christian is someone who is with Jesus in every possible way. And when it comes to these blessings here, these blessings come not because they are something that Jesus gives us outside of himself, but because we are in relationship with him, because that is who he is, because his character is good and right and giving and loving, those characteristics come out of our union with Jesus. I think this is the crux of this section, what it's really all about, being in Christ. When you look at this, what you see is that Paul uses this phrase 11 different times, because every time he brings up a blessing, he wants us to tether it back to the reality that it comes from our union with Jesus. Take a look at this. You look at this, we see in Christ is followed by, when it talks about blessings, in Christ every single time what we see is that in Christ he chose us to be holy. And then he repeats it, in Christ he predestined us for adoption. In Christ he blessed us. In Christ we have forgiveness, and so on and so forth. You see, every single time he talks about one of these blessings, he makes sure he tethers it back to in Christ. And this is more than just kind of poetic or literary form. Paul's making a point here that in the end it all comes back to our union with Jesus. It's the point of our salvation. It's the point of the gospel. It's what, me it's what it means to be a Christian. Klein Snodgrass puts it this way, every element in Paul's teaching flows from the understanding about our union with Christ, 
Note how these expressions dominate this section, what we just read here. God's purpose and election take place in Christ. God's grace and redemption are found in Christ. All things in heaven and on earth are summed up in Christ. People hope in Christ, hear the word in Christ, and by faith are sealed in Christ. I'll repeat that one phrase again because I think it's so important. Every element of Paul's teachings, which incorporates a lot in the New Testament, by the way. If you haven't noticed, Paul writes quite a bit of the New Testament flows from this idea of union with Christ. In fact, you may notice also when you read Paul's writings, his letters in the New Testament, that Paul hardly uses the word Christian at all, but he uses the phrase in Christ over 200 times to refer to followers of Jesus. He's trying to communicate something. This is our primary identity. This is what it means to be a Christian in Christ. And any definition of Christianity that misses that point or doesn't have that point as central misses the central point of what it means to actually be a Christian. I think it's important for us to realize this because there is a temptation for us to gravitate towards the blessings part, to almost kind of make Jesus like the instrument that gets us to something else. I think this is even true about something like being saved or getting to heaven. If Jesus is just a means to be saved or to get to heaven, we've missed the point of being saved We've missed the point of even going to heaven in the first place. Instead, the gospel says that we are saved through Jesus to Jesus. As John Piper says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven, if you could have salvation with no sickness, with all the friends you have ever had on earth, and all the food you have ever liked, and the leisure activities you have ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, which, by the way, really well serves up and describes the new heavens and the new earth for eternity. But all of that, if you could have all of that, and you could be satisfied with that, if Christ, could you be satisfied with that if Christ were not there? Marcus Johnson, who's written a great book on union with Christ, says this in terms of salvation. Salvation is often conceived of the reception of something Christ has acquired for us rather than the reception of the living Christ. In other words, salvation is described as a gift to be apprehended rather than the apprehension of the giver himself. To put it yet another way, the gospel is portrayed as an offer of depersonalized benefit, all these blessings, grace, justification, eternal life, rather than the offer of the very person of Christ, who is himself the grace of God, who is himself our justification, who is himself our eternal life. And our union with the living Christ is, in other words, what it means to be saved. I know there's a lot there, but what this boils down to essentially is that if Jesus is not the point of our Christianity, there is no point to our Christianity. John chapter 15, Jesus hammers this home for us in a well-known parable that many of us have heard before, it's known as the parable of the vine and the branches. And Jesus describes himself in this parable as the vine and us as the branches. And he says in the end, very simply, the point of this all is, the point of our faith in Jesus is that as branches we are joined to the vine. This makes sense for any of us who are aware of any kind of basic uh, you know, plant life and how it works, right? Essentially, if you cut a branch off the main vine, the branch will die on its own. And in fact, that's what Jesus said. I am the vine, abide in me as the branches. 
And one of the things about the branches is that they don't provide their own life. They draw life from the vine. The vine is the one who gives them life. The, the vine is the one who gives them fruit, who gives them blessing. As long as they're joined to the vine, all those things will happen. But, for the, but, but if they don't abide in the vine, if they're cut off from the vine, if they're not connected to the vine, they die and they wither on their own because they can't produce fruit on their own, they can't produce blessing on their own, they can't produce life on their own. They die as separated from the vine. So if that's true, how do we know then that we are in Christ? With this emphasis of like what it means to be in Christ, how do we know whether or not we are in Christ? We'll go back to verse 9 in chapter 1. Brings us to this point of Paul referencing the will of God. Remember from Last week, we talked about how many times Paul uses this phrase, will of God, in the book of Ephesians. In fact, it's one of the main themes that we'll see throughout this entire study, throughout this entire series. Paul, over and over again, talking about the will of God. And one of the things we notice is that, and we said last week, is that when Paul talks about the will of God, he's not necessarily talking about, like, the will of God for my life. We may often hear it talked about like that. What Paul's talking about is the will of God in the world. He's talking about the redemptive plan of God. God's will to save and redeem his creation, to bring humanity into relationship with him through Jesus, right, to reconcile his creation uh, to himself. And so what we've got here is this bigger picture of the will of God as the redemptive plan of God all the way through Scripture, and certainly through Jesus in the New Testament. It's a central theme, and Paul brings it up here in verse 9 as a mystery, which is an interesting way to phrase it. Mystery. Maybe you've seen the word mystery before in Scripture and wondered exactly what that means, because it can be a bit of a mysterious word, if you will, right? What exactly does Scripture mean when it talks about the mystery, especially the mysteries of God? Well, in general, the word mystery just simply means something that is hidden from us, something that's hidden from us, something that we wouldn't know unless God reveals it to us. Now, in Scripture, there are different kinds of mysteries, there's mysteries that have been revealed for us. They were a mystery for a time, like, for instance, the gospel of Jesus is a great one. The fact that Jesus came and who he was and he, the fact that he went to the cross and rose again were all things that nobody anticipated. Even in the Old Testament, when the prophets talked about this Messiah who would come to save God's people, they were speaking in part in mystery because they didn't know exactly what that was going to look like. Now us, on the other side of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection and ascension, we can see that as a mystery that has been revealed to us. We see that now, whereas people of the Old Testament wouldn't have seen it as clearly. There's also the mysteries that are being revealed. And then there's the mysteries that are yet to be revealed or may never be revealed. So the mysteries that are yet to be revealed, Paul talks about it here in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, there's, these, there's a promise of what will, to come, what, will, what will come, right? This future tense are these mysteries that will be revealed one day, but we don't see them exactly the way that they will be one day. So we can talk about things like the second coming of Jesus, the end times, right? Those kinds of things. We know those things are going to happen at one point. We know Jesus is coming back. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like. We don't know when it's going to happen. That's a mystery to us. And then there are mysteries that are completely another class where we'll never actually fully understand them because they're in the mind of God, because God chooses not to reveal them. Whatever they may be, they're things that, as human beings, we may never fully understand. So when you see Paul reference mystery here in verse 9, what exactly, which mystery does he have in mind? 
I think he's got at least the first two kinds of mystery here. There's the mystery revealed, and there's the mystery that's still kind of covered or hidden from us. And it all goes back to this phrase, in Christ. There's this mystery revealed that Jesus came to be a human being, what we know as the incarnation, but not just to be an example for us, although we can look to his life as an example, and not even just to die on the cross and rise from the dead, although that is necessary for our salvation. Really, the great mystery, the profound mystery that we know as the incarnation has a bigger picture to it. This great mystery revealed in Jesus is that God joined himself to his creation in a human being, giving us the hope of God being united to humanity again. It was God's plan from the beginning. It was God's plan in creation. It was God's plan in redemption. It's God's plan in eternal glorification. That we are united, that, that, that we see the, the unity of, in one man of fully God and fully human together. Marcus Johnson again describes it this way. The great mystery of the incarnation of God is that God, without ceasing to be God, became what he created in order to join us to himself. Thus the Son of God came to dwell among and in us, assuming our humanity into union with himself. The incarnation forms the basis on which our estranged humanity, flesh and bones, mind and spirit, may be united to our maker once again. Now look, so when Paul, from that frame, when Paul talks about the mystery of God's will being revealed in us as people who are in Christ, what he's saying ultimately is that those who are in Christ are walking, talking mysteries, representations of the union of God with humanity. It's a mystery to the world, and in some ways it's even a mystery to ourselves, how God joins himself with humanity through what Jesus has done to draw us and to reconcile us. Now consider that for a minute. In some ways, we don't even understand the full mystery of what God is doing in us. So that as we live in Christ, we are ourselves a living picture of the mystery of that gospel, that God would live with people in such a personal and intimate way. And this union is so personal and intimate to such a degree that Paul's going to say later in Ephesians 5, in his discussion about marriage and the purpose of marriage, he says this in, in, uh, in verse 31 and 32 in Ephesians 5. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, you may have heard these verses read at a wedding ceremony before. They're often used in a wedding ceremony. Probably a good place to use them. It's certainly applicable, especially in the moment. But the way that it's typically understood is to say, like, if you want to understand the way Jesus loves the church, just look at a marriage relationship. Sometimes it's phrased that way, which is probably not the way that this is intended, because I don't know. I mean, even the best marriages, honestly, to look at a marriage and say, you want to know the way Jesus loves the church, just look at that marriage. Which marriage are you going to point to? Because really, in honesty, if we're honest, like, that doesn't measure up. Instead, what's happening here is that what, is, what, what Paul's talking about, this mystery is profound. He is referring to this statement, the two shall become one flesh. That Christ and Christians, the union of two lives in marriage is meant to be a shadow of the reality of what God does in Christ with his church and with each Christian who is in Jesus. Augustus Strong puts it this way, Christ and the believer have the same life. 
They are not separate persons linked together by some temporary bond of friendship. They are united by a tie as close and as indissoluble as if the same blood ran through their veins. The personal and intimate nature of God being with us in Jesus. Now, in John's Gospel, John relays to us one of the most interesting scenes that happens in all of the Gospels. You may know this, you may know this from John chapter 6, but at this point in Jesus' ministry, he is probably at the height of his popularity. He's been teaching and gathering crowds. They've been watching him perform miracles and heal people. And so there's people who are all around him, just people who are kind of there because they heard of Jesus, not really sure who this is, but they want to see a cool miracle, so they show up wherever he is. There's those who are considering uh, following Jesus. Maybe they believe that he might be the Messiah that the Old Testament talks about. And then there's those who are the committed followers of Jesus, known as the disciples, and then the twelve, who of course are the apostles who are with Jesus. Now, in the midst of Jesus' great popularity, he turns to the crowds and he says this one day. Get this. John chapter 6, verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, which of course Jesus is referring to himself, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. There's that phrase, abide again. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. Now, you can imagine the reaction that happens in that moment. We're actually given the reaction of the crowds in a few verses later. How would you react if you were in that moment? That's like, like, there's a part of that where it's like joyous, but it's also extremely confusing. What exactly does that mean? We get to verse 66. John tells us what happens as a result of Jesus saying this. After Jesus said this, many disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, I think in some ways, I laughed to myself, because I think only Jesus would do this. At the height of his popularity, he makes this point about the truth of the gospel and what he is doing to reconcile people that just completely flies over everybody's head. And then he looks to his disciples as everyone else is leaving, and he says, are you going to leave as well? And I think Peter, as the spokesman of the disciples, gives the right and faithful answer. I imagine Peter just thinking to himself, Jesus, I, I don't know what you just said there. <laughs> I can't make sense of what those words are that just came out of your mouth. But what I do know is that the words that come from your mouth are the words of eternal life. Because he is confessing, of course, that we believe and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of Israel. You are the one who is the Messiah. And there's a part in Peter where he's confessing, but also what you see from this point forward is Peter is still trying to figure out what it ultimately means to eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus, to be in Christ so intimately in the way that Jesus describes this. Again, Marcus Johnson says, the union believers have with Jesus Christ, this breathtaking, nearly unutterably glorious, deeply personal, profoundly real participation in the crucified, resurrected, living Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is the essence and the foundation of salvation. To properly understand the riches of salvation, we must grapple 
with this mystery. And it's part of grappling with that mystery in terms of what it means, is, is what exactly what it means to actually live in Christ. We, you may know this word sanctification, right? You may have heard this word before. It happens throughout Scripture. Essentially, the word sanctification means to be made holy or to be made separate. We see the phrase in the very first verse when, when uh, the phrase about holy ones in, in Ephesus, right? The set-apart ones Paul talks about. And this sanctification refers to us being set apart in Christ. Our sanctification comes all the way back to, again, being tethered to being in Christ. What makes us set apart? Not that we go to church, not that we do certain things, not that we live a certain lifestyle, but what sets us apart is that we are in Christ. That's what sets us apart. And so the process of growing a Christian and understanding the Christian life doesn't stop when we first come to faith in Jesus, we are actually growing more and more into our understanding of the union that we have with Jesus that he has begun in us. It is pressing deeper into the communion of the living Lord. We are in Christ. And when it comes to living out all these things, we know that, you know, in many cases we're told that sanctification produces transformation in our lives. Sanctification produces certain characteristics so that we look more Christ-like in our lives. Those are all real things that happen. Um, when we look at a list like the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, what we see are really the character of Christ. We're told humility as a character aspect of Christ is so supposed to permeate in our lives. And so all these things are, are ways that we look like Jesus. But at times... Those things can capture our attention rather than what actually happens, which, which is actually how this is designed to happen, which is pressing deeper into Christ actually produces those characteristics as a result of our pressing deeper into the union of Christ. In other words, again, going back to the vine and branches example, the branch cannot produce fruit on its own, no matter how hard it tries to produce that fruit of patience, that fruit of... Uh, that fruit of kindness, that fruit of love, that fruit of whatever it may be, humility. But the degree that which he is connected and healthily connected to the vine, those things are automatically produced in that branch's life because it's characteristic of the vine. I think this is important to remember because our spiritual lives can often become more about just what does our lifestyle look like rather than are we pressing deeper into our relationship and our union with Jesus. You know, the Pharisees, I think, in many ways are an example of what it looks like to focus on the wrong things. You may remember the Pharisees and Jesus' encounters with the Pharisees in the Gospels. The Pharisees lived by the law. They were the law keepers, the Mosaic law keepers. They lived by the 613 religious laws and ceremonial laws in the Mosaic, in the Mosaic Covenant. But then they also built hundreds of other laws around those 613 laws so that they could make sure that they didn't get close to breaking any of the 613 laws. It was all about the externals for them and nothing really about the internal reality of being united to God. That's why Jesus comes along and he says, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. Everything looks great on the outside. Jesus doesn't condemn their lifestyle. He looks at their lifestyle and he says, you have a moral lifestyle? If somebody wanted to see what it looks like to follow the law... They should look at the way that you live and do your faith. But inwardly, you're like dead man's bones. Whitewashed tombs with dead man's bones inside. 
that there is nothing that actually, he condemned not their lifestyle, but their perspective and their approach to God. Because the Pharisees didn't want God on God's terms. They didn't want God for God's sake. They wanted God on their terms. And because of what they taught, Jesus said, you heap burdens, you heap boundaries, you heap blockades between people and a true connection with God. The spirit of a Pharisee is something that we all need to be aware of. I think it's one of the greatest dangers for a church person, for those of us who are in church. And one of Jesus' most well-known parables addresses this in particular. I want to close with this. The parable is often known as the parable of the prodigal son. You may know it that way. I think it's more aptly or more appropriately titled the parable of two sons. In fact, that's what Jesus calls it in Luke chapter 15. And the story goes this way. As Jesus tells the story, he says there are two sons, There's an older son and a younger son. And they're the sons of this father who has apparently enormous amount of wealth. And one day the younger son comes to his father and he says to him, Father, I want you to give me all of my inheritance and I'm ready to leave the house and I'm going to go off on my own. Which was insulting, of course, to the father because an inheritance is only supposed to be given once the father is dead to his children. So for this For this younger son to come ask for his inheritance before his father is dead is basically like saying, you're dead to me, just give me your money, and I'm going to go live out on my own. And so the younger son, so the father gives him his inheritance. The younger son leaves the house, and he goes out, and as Jesus says, spends all of the money very quickly on what Jesus calls reckless living. It's defined a little later in the parable as spending the money on prostitutes and, and all the rest. So basically the worst thing you can possibly do. It doesn't get much worse than that. Now, the other son in the story is the oldest son, who does everything right. He's perfectly obedient to his father. He stays around when the younger son leaves, and so probably has to pick up a lot more of the work that the younger son was doing. So now he's doing double the work of what he was doing before his younger brother left. And he stays around the house, and he helps his father with everything, obedient to everything that the father tells him to do. Now, one day, after the younger son has spent all of his money, and he's homeless, and he's found him in such dire straits that he's literally living in a pig pen, he decides to himself, if I go back to my father, and I ask him for mercy, and I apologize, maybe he'll let me come back into the house and be just a servant in, in the home. And so he's basically at the end of his rope. He shows up, and no sooner does he show up on his father's front doorstep that his father comes running to him, embraces him, and says, come back into my house as my son. And not only that, but I'm going to throw a feast for you. Kill the fattened calf, in other words, the best of the meat that we have, and we're going to celebrate the greatest feast that we have ever had because my son has come home. Now, the older son sees all that's going on, and he gets upset. And he reasons with his father. He says, this is unfair. I've been with you from the very beginning. This, this, this kid has taken all your money, and he's gone, and he's spent it on prostitutes. And I've been faithful and obedient to you the entire time. Luke 15, 29, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me so much as a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. It's the statement afterwards, which is the very next verse from the father, his response that reveals the problem in this, the heart of the older brother. And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. And with that statement, he reveals the heart of the older son. You see, what the son is saying is, Father, it wasn't good enough that I was with you. 
I wanted the inheritance too. I wanted a party thrown for me too. I wanted the things that you could give me. And the father says, son, I've been with you and you've been with me the entire time. Isn't that what really counts? Isn't that what matters? Isn't that enough for you? And this leaves us with two big takeaways. The greatest danger, of course, for the unchurched person is that they would run away from their father and go live however they want, living for pleasure, self-enlightenment, rebellion, and we see that happening in our world all the time. But the greatest danger for the church person is that they would miss being with their father because of their own self-righteousness. Because they thought they were looking for something the entire time that wasn't exactly what God wants to give us. Which is even better than what we could want. Which is being in Christ. Those two types of lifestyles look different on the surface, but at the heart they are both rebellion and they both lead exactly to what they want. Not in the end actually being with the Father. And as this applies for us, there is a form of religion that many might even call Christian, which wants all the blessings from Ephesians 1 and other places in the Bible, from salvation to adoption to redemption to eternal life, and doesn't really want Jesus as the most important. And look, these two things are not in competition with one another. It's not like we've got in Christ and then we've got all the blessings of Christ in competition with one another. It's that these two work hand in hand or they don't work at all. A gospel that does not bring you to Jesus as its ultimate goal is no gospel at all, since it leaves out the best part of the good news, which is Jesus himself. Now, when we started today, I asked you the question of what do you think it means to be a Christian? One phrase, one word, maybe one statement. Now, going through what we've talked about today, has that answer changed at all? I hope that from this point forward, you might think about it. At least including the possibility that in Christ is exactly what it means to be a Christian. Now, that means a whole bunch of things. But more than anything, in Christ means, in Christ describes exactly what it means to be a Christian. And God is calling us to wrestle with, really, this mystery of what it means to be in Christ. It's a beautiful thing. As Paul says, it's profound It's life-changing, it's eternity-changing, but it's a beautiful thing that calls us forward. Let's pray. Lord, we are are thankful for your goodness towards us that is shown in so many different ways, but these blessings that we see are certainly part of that. But Lord, more than anything, to think about the fact that it's your desire that that we would be in Jesus, that we would be so closely connected to you that it would be like two becoming one flesh. It's just an amazing, profound thing for us to think about. It's the height of your goodness. It's the height of what it means for us to say that the gospel of Jesus is good news. That being in Christ is central to it all. And Father, we, we confess that, that many times it's, it's confusing for us. Many times maybe we've read this and it just didn't really make sense to us. Or, you know, that phrase is so easy to skip over, especially with these list of all these wonderful things like salvation and, and, and adoption and glorification and forgiveness. I mean, those are wonderful things that often get our attention as they should. 
But Lord, help draw us to the meaning of what this means, this great mystery that you're revealing to us, that you have revealed to us, that you're still revealing to us of what it means to be in Christ. That'll be our eternal reality more than anything else. And that is already what it means to live right now as a Christian. You have done this in us so that you could bring us to yourself. Help us to see that the destination of our salvation is Jesus himself. And Lord, we pray that you would help us uh, to cherish that. And in our pursuit of what it means to be people who walk closer to Jesus, that this would be the thing that we focus on. It would drive our hearts more than anything. It seems to be the thing that Paul's focused on. seems to be what you have inspired him to write through this, that you want us to know about yourself. And so help us to more fully engage with this and to embrace it in our lives. May it be our reality. And it's in Christ that we pray. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Go ahead and have a seat quickly. Um, we announced a couple weeks ago that uh, one of our staff members, Kirsten Snary, who is our, uh, our uh, discipleship minister for one more day <laughs> today, the last day, uh, is, is uh, stepping away from our staff. I don't want to say stepping down, but stepping away from our staff to go pursue um, a, a job with a nonprofit organization that God has, has, has led her to. And, and she's served faithfully here for, Kirsten, why don't you come up here? Give her a hand, first of all. And I want to ask the staff to join us up here as well. We're going we're gonna to pray for Kirsten. Uh, but how many years has it been again? I keep forgetting. 14. Almost 14 years that Kirsten has served here on staff. And, of course, we recognize that, you know, God, God moves pieces as he will. God moves us as a staff as he will. God moves us as a church as he will. And one of the places, of course, that God is moving is moving Kirsten uh, into this new role where she's going to, we're all confident that She's going to thrive, and we're excited to see what God does through this next chapter of ministry. It's not stepping away from ministry. It's just ministry in a different place. And it's not stepping away from the church and being involved here at North Bible Church. You guys and, and your wonderful family are still going to be with us, um, which is awesome because you guys are such a great part of our church, who we are, who we're becoming, and, um, and, and what God has planned for us going forward. So what we want to do is we want to, this is a commissioning prayer, essentially. We're, we're sending Kirsten off into a new place in ministry, and we're doing it as a church family. I've asked the staff to join me up here, but also if you would uh, please extend a hand, if you would, if you're comfortable with that, towards Kirsten. We're going to pray for her now as we, send her, as we send her off in this new chapter of life, but still here within our church. So I want to be clear about that. <laughs> Father, we thank you so much uh, for how you have gifted Kirsten. Uh, thank you for, for her heart to love you and to follow you wherever you may lead her. And I thank you that this new chapter in life is an opportunity uh, to expand on the experience that she's gotten here at North as well as the experience that you've given her previous to North and to really, uh, uh, for your kingdom, work in a way that maximizes the gifts that you've given her for your glory. We pray that as she starts her job tomorrow, Lord, you would give her uh, clarity of mind and thought. Give her a good night's rest tonight, a good night's sleep. 
Uh, give her a good Mother's Day that's just relaxing and prepare her mind and her heart for what she's going to learn over the next few weeks as she gets into her new job. I thank you for the new team that she's going to join up with. Uh, Lord, I pray that that would just be a sweet, um, a sweet uh, coming together of a group of people who are working um, for your purposes in the world. And so, Lord, would you guide her, give her wisdom. We thank you uh, for the blessing that she has been here at, at North and the role that she's been in. We know that she's not leaving, but at the same time, Lord, uh, there is a gap that's left behind because of the distinct role that she has served uh, as, as in the various places, various roles that she's served on our church staff over the years. So thank you for her goodness and her faithfulness in serving all of us and in serving you above all. And we pray that you would bless her, encourage her, Lord, that your, your light and your face would shine upon her as she moves on uh, to a new place in ministry. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thanks. Oh, we have a gift for her as well. There's a gift we're presenting to her from the staff, so give her a hand. Thank you, guys. All right, again, happy Mother's Day to all of you again. If you, uh, we have our prayer partners that are located here to my right, on uh, the stage right in front of the cross over there. If you want somebody to pray with as you leave here this morning, they're here to pray with anybody who would like to pray. We also have prayer cards that are located on our table. As you leave here this morning, you can fill out a prayer card if you have a prayer need. Drop it in the offering stands as you leave here this morning. And we'll make sure that we are praying for those, or praying with you for those things over this next week. Thank you all again. Have a great and happy Mother's Day, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.